Hello, friends. Welcome to People Are Interesting, an audio journal hosted by me, Jan Kay, as a record of people who inspired me and of topics that I found intriguing over time. Enjoy and thank you for joining the club. And we're running. Thanks so much for being here, Jody. Uh, with me is a creator and presenter of YouTube channel called Exit Strategy TV, active on Instagram, YouTube, but you're also a journalist and a traveler. Um, That's correct. That Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I wear many hats. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think people who I think people who wear many hats tend to be very interesting because it's just different influences. I feel like literally your brain is shaped in many different directions. Yeah, probably. I mean, I guess. Yeah, I mean, um, so I guess first and foremost, yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a journalist, independent um, um, journalist. I, I, I string for a lot of different uh, publications that will buy uh, some of the pitches that I either send them or sometimes I'll be commissioned for items. But um, you're correct in the, uh, the first part of your introduction. Um, that I have created uh, a project called Exit Strategy. It's a, basically a side project to my reporting, um, and yeah, I, I mean, you could find um, you could find that on on uh, YouTube and and uh, Instagram. Yeah, and that's actually how I found you. So maybe let's dive right into the first question because I think it's going to unpack what it is that you do with the with your work and with your channel. I've seen this video from the Python Temple and other clips from Benin and West yeah. Africa. What, what were you doing there? How did you so end up there? I, I could give you the longer version of how exit strategy started. And then I guess that can, um, and then my own uh, career in reporting, um, uh, because they kind of overlap. Um, and that might, because sometimes it's difficult to describe exactly what exit strategy is for people. It's still very new. Um, but I can give you that version, I guess. Uh, um, so during the pandemic, when all of us had nothing to do, we were all stuck at home. We were all working from home. Um, instead of doing what I think most of my American brethren did was watch television and drink themselves uh, to sleep every night, I decided to make the better use of the time and just start a podcast. Um, and I named it Exit Strategy Podcast. I think um, uh, I the, the term exit strategy had always been in my mind since uh, following uh, the war on terror. Um, it was a, a term that was that was um, constantly thrown around and used uh, when the American foreign policy establishment or the, the, um, the, the Bush administration was going into the Iraq war, which I was adamantly opposed to at the time uh, and, and, and mundane critics of that um, of that choice to uh, occupy, invade and occupy Iraq, uh, they use the term exit strategy. So I always found it very interesting. Um, uh, um, it was also brought up again during the uh, um, aftermath of, or the pulling out of Afghanistan. Uh, and the reason behind it was because I was very interested in geopolitics. I was interested in uh, um, what was happening around the world. And uh our major um, mainstream media outlets in the States uh, were not very critical of the foreign policy or not enough. Um, and to the extent that they were critical, um, they were only critical for about five minutes. They only gave you about five minutes of information. And that was a long time. Um, and it still is a very long time 
uh, to, to condense a lot of that information. So I thought the best way to do this is to talk to experts, talk to a lot of different people for a long amount of time, for at least an hour. Uh, so you can get some content that's at least thought provoking. Um, and so during the pandemic, I started the Exit Strategy Podcast. The Exit Strategy Podcast was the idea was um, to create a podcast around geopolitics, conflict, and the illicit political economy. So I, I just started um, reaching out to people who were already home anyway. Nobody was uh, nobody was out doing anything. So I was I was able to get um, a very wide variety um, and high profile guests for the podcast. It kind of took off. It, it, it was you know it's always slow to start these things. Um, but I had a great time doing it. It was a good, good use of time during the pandemic. And probably around, uh, I guess, a year and a half in, I started thinking, hey, um, I wonder once this pandemic is over, it might be interesting to go to some of these places that I'm talking to experts with and maybe do some filming and maybe um, make a sort of vlog style YouTube channel where I cover some of these same topics. And I, I also included um culture and cuisine and the reason i did that was because there are so many countries uh or excuse me there aren't so many countries but there are countries that are enduring conflict and it's almost impossible to uh get there as an independent journalist um and pull out a camera and start filming and asking questions it's a notoriously stupid thing to do so um to to continue to be able to create content I expanded to Exit Strategy TV, and I cover, uh, or at least try to, give topics around conflict in a specific area, but also um, try to showcase some culture and cuisine. So um, uh, I had already been to Ethiopia for uh, some time, and uh, I had a lot of footage from there. I was editing footage during the pandemic, and as the pandemic was coming to a close, um, and as uh, uh consumers were able to get back into the air and travel again, um, I simply outlined some places that uh, I wanted to go to, specifically in Africa, that I, that I wanted to check out, um, and, that where the, and, and where the itinerary made sense. Um, and those countries for this first trip, which happened last year between this time, April 2022, and I came back uh, about the end of August, so about six months, um, and it started in Togo, so neighboring Benin. Started in Togo. I drove to Benin, um, spent time there, then flew uh, to Ethiopia, spent a long time there, Kenya, Madagascar, back to Kenya, and then back home. And I covered, I, I got footage in each of those countries. Um, so I can get into all of that if you'd like, but um, that's basically what happened. So now I'm, I'm holding this big project, the Exit Strategy Project podcast on one hand, the video, audio, video uh, style vlog um, content on the other, and I'm just kind of uh, umbrelling it, umbrellaing it on YouTube right now, um, mm -hmm. and yeah, that's 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 basically what it is, and that's what I'm what I'm doing right now. Fantastic. Let's talk about the countries that you've picked to go to. So you said you started in Togo, Benin, Ethiopia, Madagascar, Kenya. Um, why did you pick? Yes, Kenya. Thank you. Why did you pick those countries? What was special? So about it's a good them? question. Um, I mean, first and foremost, I was able to get. I, I it at the time it was uh, there were still many COVID restrictions. So, for example, one of my first choices was going to be Ghana, um, but the mm -hmm. neighboring countries weren't allowing you to visit them if you were coming from Ghana. So I knew if I was traveling to Ghana, mm -hmm. 
I would have to really fly somewhere else immediately. I couldn't just travel through like in a line, you know? Um, so I was trying to find places that were accessible and where their COVID COVID rules were either coming to a close or that they would at least allow you to enter in through um, with a car or, or, or motorcycle or something uh, over the border with um, a, a legitimate um, COVID test or pass. Um, the second reason is because I hail from New Orleans, Louisiana. This is a big... Um, uh, French-speaking part of, or probably the only French-speaking part of the United States. We have uh, Cajun and Creole culture here um, that is a big, big part of, of the culture in South Louisiana. Um, and so I grew up uh, eating gumbo. I grew up uh, with voodoo museums and this voodoo lore around us. Mm. Um, and, you know, that didn't happen in isolation. That, that came here like everything else did because we're such a new country. So where do those things come from? Well, partially West Africa and Togo um, has a uh, just uh, mountains worth of beautiful, amazing, uh, just phenomenal uh, voodoo culture, um, voodoo festivals, um, practices and ceremonies. I certainly wanted to get there and check that out. And then neighboring Benin, I mean, Togo as well, all of West Africa really eats gumbo. Um, the word gumbo is French for okra, uh, and it's mm. a staple of, of what goes in the gumbo. Now, their gumbo is a little bit different, but anyway, one of the next upcoming videos is going to be uh, me traveling through uh, some of the markets in Benin, gathering the ingredients from gumbo and going to a private citizen's home. That I was invited to go to their home and uh, cook gumbo, create, uh, prepare, and cook gumbo Um and yeah, that's going to be probably one of the next uh, one of the next YouTube videos coming out there. So that's how I chose those in West Africa. Um, uh, in Ethiopia, I've already had many contacts there already. So it was um, um, at the time uh, I was leaving Benin to Ethiopia and there were no COVID restrictions at the time. So Ethiopia was a great choice for the third country there. Uh, and then... Um, I think by the time I was finished conducting most of the reporting and, and, and videography in Ethiopia, the COVID restrictions had been lifted in all of Africa, which was very, which was great. Mm -hmm. um, I was considering coming home right after Ethiopia, but because the COVID restrictions had been lifted, I was like, why not? Let's go down to Kenya. Let's uh, do some shooting. And then um, I popped over to Madagascar. Uh, for about three weeks, traveled the island, um, got a lot of great content, um, and then uh, and then flew home. So that's that's basically how those countries came about. Um, I'm going to do another round of traveling where I've, it will be Africa again, probably um, not those countries because mm -hmm. I want to cover kind of as many places as I can and and keep the the channel as fluid and dynamic as possible. So yeah. So you're talking about the West African influences in yeah. Louisiana. I am personally not from that corner of the world. Would you be able to explain a little bit more of what that flavor is and what are some of those cultural in influences that you see in sure. Louisiana? And then when you actually went to West Africa, what did you see there? Yeah. And, and about sure, those Sure, great question. Um, so a lot of, a lot of the... the culinary influences of West Africa are often reported in um, our local and regional 
um, culinary news. So we know that there's an influence, but it, it never really goes into detail. Um, and I really wanted to explore the some of those details. I mean, the vegetables that were used in uh, gumbo were brought by people who were sold into slavery and came from West Africa to um, the Caribbean, to South America, and to where I'm from, the Port of New Orleans. The Port of New Orleans was a huge port for um, for captured slaves, and uh, they came mm-hmm. with gumbo um, literally in hand, um, as far as the research shows. Um, with the mix of Native American sassafras and other spices around here, there's a there's French influence of making a roux. This is when you cook down butter and, and oils to make a sort of brown gravy. That's the base of the gumbo. Um, and then, you know, inserting uh, all of the seafood, um, Togo and Benin, both are coastal countries, lots of access to seafood. Um, so that's what went into those okra stews. And that's also what goes into um, our port of Louisiana. It's on the water. Um, everything about our mm-hmm. our culinary uh, um, institutions um, basically revolve around seafood. It's oysters, it's crab, it's shellfish, it's shrimp, prawns. Um, it's it's mm-hmm. all of this stuff. So it was almost like a natural, even though it was brought together by a very brutal institution of slavery, it was almost the same sort of uh, regional um, agricultural effects that brought that soup together. So of course, you have, um, that's kind of how, you know, in summary, that's kind of how gumbo was brought here to Louisiana. I mean, and it's gone through many evolutions and iterations. Like I said, our gumbo here is a lot different from uh, what they would consider gumbo, but you still see how you still, that was like the original, the gumbo and and ours is Mm -hmm. much more, um, I wouldn't say evolved. It just, um, it just changes, you know, it's syncretic. There's so many other influences that that go into Louisiana gumbo. Um, And then also, you know, along with the food, you know, um, most of West Africa uh, um, believes in some form of uh, vodun or voodoo. And of course, that was brought to Louisiana along the transatlantic slave trade. Um, We still have uh, voodoo practitioners here, uh, though not as many. Um, but, um, but many, uh, exist throughout, uh, throughout Louisiana. I mean, obviously you'll see most of it in Haiti and throughout the Caribbean, um, countries, but, uh, but it certainly made its way, uh, made its way here. And, um, it's still something that's, uh, reveled. Uh, we have, a, you know, in Louisiana, our tourist industry is, uh, is very large. It's basically, we, we rely on oil and gas and tourism. Um, and one of the reasons tourists continue to come is because uh, New Orleans uh, is really the only place in the United States where you can even you could find anything voodoo related at all. Um, uh, there's really no other place like Louisiana, uh, um, just because it still carries so much of that West African influence. And part of the cultural aspect of exit strategy was uh, was mm-hmm. filming that, capturing that and. Uh, yeah, that's, um, I'm in the process of editing those films, uh, right now. Yeah. Okay. Sorry if that was a long so, answer. No, it was no, not at all. Actually, I want to drill sure, sure. into that a little bit more. So, you know, Europe, not a lot of voodoo going on here, not like in Louisiana, right. West Africa. Can you explain what that is? What it entails? What voodoo entails? 
So I think yeah. it's different for wherever you go. I'm no expert in the religion. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a, a, a armchair expert when it comes to this stuff. Um, I just scratched the surface a little bit. You know, if you go on YouTube and you look at most of the travel channels, they don't cover this stuff. It's usually people waving a camera around, look at my first class flight, uh, or um, they go to places I think that uh, there's probably a lot of content already, usually around Europe, because these are safe places to go. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to Togo. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of risks yeah. going to West Africa and stuff. So um, that's part of the reason I, I wanted to cover this. But in terms of what voodoo entails, I mean, it's um, it's a mix of um, sort of like a Catholicism and animism. It's kind of like this sort of, I don't want to use the word primitive, but it's like some of the pre-colonial religious beliefs that were already in Africa mixed with uh, a sort of uh, Christianity. Um, and it's practiced differently everywhere you go. Um, you know, uh, much of it, much of what I experienced in West Africa almost always included the blood of uh, a sacrificed animal. So for usually a chicken, mm -hmm. um, these are the easiest mm -hmm. to sacrifice, easiest to, uh, I guess, um, uh, clean or kill. And, uh, and then they usually are, um, doing ceremonies where they read the placement of bones or dice or stones or something like that. And then as well, it also includes, uh, a heavy use of alcohol in almost every ceremony that I was a part of and filmed, um, throughout the region involved the consumption myself and the, and the voodoo priest, consuming rum or consuming mm -hmm. a sort of uh, distilled uh, moonshine. Um, and then also mm -hmm. them um, using that to like, you know, uh, throw on the animal or throw on the, um, the items that they were trying to read. Um, the practice varies widely depending on what you actually want to do. So um, through my very limited uh, knowledge and experience with them, uh, I, I was, it was explained that I could either, sit down and ask about something about my life. Uh, so for example, I could have a sort of, for Western audiences, it would be have like a fortune read. So like uh, you can ask about um, if you'll be successful in life or if you are facing any immediate health issues. Um, you could also cast a spell. So you can say, I really want to fall in love with this person or uh, I think I have a curse on me. Can you remove the curse? So all of these things, it's, it, it varies widely, but you can see a voodoo practitioner just about anywhere and for almost anything. Um, now, I think what's interesting in uh, Togo and Benin, you'd never know that there are voodoo practitioners around. There's no church. There's no building mm -hmm. that says voodoo here. There's none, none of that. Um, you have to know a guy. So you basically have to very, be very cheeky and very sneaky around town. Be careful who you ask um, and how you ask for that sort of thing, because it's always suspect. It's not like something that people readily seek out, you know, especially white people running around with a GoPro. They're going to be like, what do you want? Um, and in fact, that, that mm. that's happened. Um, so I get I hope that answers the question for to, to a bit. Um, that's that's kind of what it's about. Now, I, I will say this. Uh, um, I'll, I'll, I'll disclose that I am uh, not a believer. Uh, um, none of this uh, really, some of it was quite amusing, but it's um, like most religions based on a sort of superstitious 
uh, religious um, focus that's been normalized throughout the years. So I give it plenty of respect. I, you know, never said anything or, or pushed back on the um, the truthfulness of of it. But uh, I certainly never felt any spiritual movement or um, impact from any of the ceremonies that I took part in, especially the ones where I asked for, you know, things to happen for myself. Uh, but nevertheless, mm -hmm. it's a cultural artifact that exists, whether or not I believe in it, and therefore should be documented. I know I agree with you 100%. Yeah. So how, if you're saying that it wasn't that easy to, you know, get yourself around to a voodoo ceremony, what was your way of going about it once you've landed in Togo? You you had a guy, you walked around and spoke to people. Well, the good thing about Togo is that it's the one country in West Africa that has a very big voodoo cere uh, voodoo festival. Um, uh, it's, at, it's every January, mm -hmm. the beginning of the year. Unfortunately, I, I was unable to go. Um, uh, at the time, we arrived uh, in April, but... Um, it's a bit easier there because they know that they are really known for that. I mean, um, they have the world's largest voodoo fetish market. Also, these animal artifacts are called uh, fetishes, or sometimes they build uh, these strange mounds out of out of mud and dirt and palm oil, and they represent different voodoo gods. Um, you can find them on the roadside. We actually went to one. That's going to be a video um, that, that I'll be coming out with soon. Um, so it's a bit easier to ask around, uh, it's, it's, it's more difficult. I think if you're in Nigeria looking for voodoo because fewer people practice it and they really want to know what the hell you're up to. Like, are you really believing, do you really believe mm -hmm. in this? Uh, what are you trying to do here? What, what, what's going on? They have, you know, they're very um, skeptical. Uh, but in Togo, we didn't really need anyone. We did, we certainly asked around for specific things, but the answers were very, um, they were very easy to disclose, like where to go and what to do. Um, and usually for a small fee, you can ask a guide um, or a tourist agency where you can go for a specific, um, for specific things you're looking for. Um, the, um, and I'll look it up here. I can't remember the name. Um Largest. Yeah, sure. Um, the uh, uh, Sewa, that's what it's called. Sewa Fetish Market mm -hmm. um, is just outside mm -hmm. of, it's about like half a mile outside of the uh, Togo International Airport. And it's this large mm -hmm. open air um, uh, market um, enclosed by large clay wall. And on all of the tables are different animal parts, even for by Western standards, exotic animal parts. These are animals that you and I probably grew up seeing in zoos um, from cheetah heads to elephant ears, uh, monkey hands. Uh, yeah. And so uh, I got all of this on footage. This is going to be the first video that I actually put uh, on the YouTube channel uh, from this trip. Mm -hmm. uh, I also wrote about this experience for the Daily Beast. Um, and I can provide you that link after if mm. you'd like to um, put it in the description and stuff. I would love to. Um, yeah, of course. But if you Google my name and uh, voodoo, it'll come up. Uh, because apparently okay. very few Westerners have been there. Very few care to go. Um, it's also, um, it's an ugly place. Although 
look, it's a part of their culture. People go there to buy. It's almost like a giant pharmacy. People go there to buy these animal mm-hmm. parts to take to a voodoo priest uh, or to a practitioner. Oh, and then I they, uh, you know, they say, hey, cure my erectile dysfunction. And he'll say, okay, you mm. need, you, you, need a, you need a horse hoof uh, and, and, and yeah. owl eyes. And they have it. They have it was it was huge. It wow. was it was the size of uh, a normal football stadium, probably maybe not that large, maybe half the size. But um, but just mm-hmm. every animal that you can think of, um, all dead and decomposing. So it it really smelled the stench of death no inside. Uh, but it was certainly weird. It was very it was a very much um, an Atlas Obscura uh, sort of trip that day. Yeah. Um, but uh, there are tour guides inside. There are voodoo practitioners on site. So you can actually buy um, some of these animal parts uh, right then and there and then just take it to the back. Um, we actually didn't do any of that. They really tried to push us to buy some of these things. But we were like, um, I was traveling with a guy from the UK. Uh, we were like, look, we've got, we're from the States and the UK. They're not going to let us take a monkey paw back. That's going to, that's going to be, uh, not that they, not that we would, we, but we just didn't want to say no, but we have customs agencies here that are not going to allow an, uh, uh, animal parts, decomposing animal parts to be led into the country. Um, but, um, yeah, I have photos and, and things on the, uh, on the daily beast article. So if anyone is interested um, to see that, uh, yeah, you can, you can check that article out, um, and then just subscribe to my YouTube, uh, channel and, and you'll see that come up. Um, it's very tedious to, uh, to, uh, uh, edit these videos. So, um, it's taken me some time, but that'll be the first uh, part of the series. Yeah. Okay. But you've already started posting things from Benin. Um, I posted some shorts. Um, now there are, uh, also I, I wrote uh, a great article about the experience cooking gumbo for the BBC. Um, that's on the BBC's world table, uh, site. I can also provide you that link, but the, um, long form videos from this trip are not up yet. So, um, um, mm-hmm. what you'll see on the channel Got now, uh, is my previous experience in Ethiopia in 2019. It was my last trip before, uh, COVID shut down everything. And, uh, it was my, uh, first experience with the mercy tribe of the lower Omo Valley. The mercy are, um, a pretty ruthless, uh, and dangerous tribe, um, that probably people recognize the women carry very large lip plates in their, uh, in their mm-hmm. mouths, in their, in their lips. Um, and so I spent, uh, about two weeks living amongst them, living in on their, on their, uh, um, next to their huts on their land and, uh, just kind of documenting, um, the travel in, um, it was incredibly, it's, it's almost impossible to reach them just because the, the roads are so terrible. You have to take um, at least one domestic flight within Ethiopia. Uh, you have to have um, fixers. Um, you really have to know people uh, to get that kind of access. Uh, so that's what you'll see. Um, that was most of, that's most of the videos that you'll see um, on the uh, YouTube channel right now. Uh, but all of that is mm-hmm. about to change uh, probably within the next couple of weeks because I'm going to start uh, releasing um uh, items from Togo and in and in the order in which I traveled. So you'll see the stuff from Togo first, then Benin, uh, then Ethiopia, Kenya, Madagascar, and um, and then I'm just going to keep going from there. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. So as as much as you obviously want to talk about it before releasing the materials. I don't um, mind. It's all as, it's as much completely as fine. It's my fault that it's taken okay. this long. Uh, it shouldn't have taken me this long, but uh, I, yeah, like I said, I'm uh, I do a lot of contract consulting on the side uh, or as my primary job, and then um, reporting and writing all these stories. I'm, you know, life in general just gets in the way, so it's my fault that it's taken this so long to get out. But they're coming, I promise. No, no, of course, that's that's sure. totally fine. But in in terms of. Um, just didn't want to essentially be asking about things that you prefer no. to basically I'm, I'm share. Open book. It's all um, good. All right. All right. Um, so you land in Togo first. Is that, did I, did no, I that's correct. Up? We land, we flew from London to Lome. Lome is the capital. It sits on the, uh, on the border. Uh, uh, I'm excuse me, on the coast. Um, we got through COVID screening, uh, got through immigration, relatively okay um and but the you certainly notice um the sort of authoritarian presence there i mean it's not an open Mm -hmm. democracy by any means in fact it's the oldest single family autocracy in africa it's where the first coup um, by assassination happened after uh european independence occurred so it's um, it's been ruled by a single family um, since 1967. Uh, the first thing you notice are just armed guards everywhere, um, mm-hmm. uh, security uh, police everywhere. Uh, you know these guys that mm-hmm. are uh, that mean business in black shades and and huge uh, AR-15s, um, and not even just in the airport. This is in regular society as well. Um, government SUVs regularly run down the road, but they, the, the police clear the streets before these SUVs, um, they just make their, make their way down main streets. Uh, I'm writing an article on the authoritarianism of Togo as we speak. So I'll, I'll release that, uh, to you as soon as it's published. Um, that's for Palladium magazine, but that's certainly, um, that was certainly, uh, something that, that you, you, we definitely felt while there, um, you know, um, in contrast to Benin, where there was, it's a very, it's much more open democracy. Um, there was no, no heavy paranoid government presence um, there. And they're, you know, neighboring countries, they're brother, sister countries. So it was quite a contrast. Okay. So what's, what's the, where did you just stay when you were in Togo? Like, do you need to stay in like some places kind of assigned by the government or you can kind of like go wherever um, you it's want? It's not that bad, but they do, the they do have Airbnb there. They do have regular hotels. Um, they have hotels uh, that are geared more for a Western palette. Um, I think the, the vast majority of its tourism is made up by French. It was a French colony. Um, so we did see a lot of young French people there. I mean, not many, uh, um, not like in like the coastline of Kenya, for example, you see, you know, English and Mm -hmm. Germans everywhere. Um, but Mm -hmm. not so much in Togo. And also I think one of the reasons is, uh, right off the coast, the, the land in the ocean drops significantly and it's not safe to swim. So, um, oh. it was, it was, you never really saw anybody on the beach because there was, nobody was getting in the water. You only saw Togolese fishermen going out. So that also added to the eeriness of it because you saw this vast, beautiful beach, beautiful ocean, 
and nobody is on it. And so it was like, uh, like the deserted feeling you get when you see those like North Korean buildings or, or those buildings in, uh, in Iran that are completely vacant, you know, like um, it's it had that yeah. same feeling like people should be out doing something, you know, they had a few little beach bars, but um, everyone really kept to themselves. People were, were, were pretty quiet. Um, there was a police presence everywhere. I was actually detained um, with my friend just for having the camera. Uh, I was filming some B-reel on the wall, uh, like cracks in the mm-hmm. wall, literally nothing of importance, and uh, immediately got called by called in by a, a police officer, security, uh, uh, security personnel to uh, um, interrogate me uh, um, and review the footage. Thankfully, um, mm-hmm. I was quick to have pretty much everything backed up. So I was able to delete a few things on the GoPro and they were satisfied and they eventually let me go after about an hour. But um, of the of the travelogues that I've seen on YouTube and just some of the other stories that I've heard, Togo does not mess around. They do not like film photography. They do not like photography just in general at all, um, which is also a deterrent for tourism. So you can't swim mm. in the ocean. You can't take pictures. And all that's left is going to see dead animal heads. It's not, a, it's not an attractive place for tourists. So it was a great place for exit wow. strategy because I want to go to places that people don't normally really want to go or um, try to uncover some of those weird, weird aspects of, of, uh, of some of this culture. Uh, so it made for a great subject area for me. Intriguing. So you're saying that there is a big difference in general vibe between Benin's much more open. Yeah. I mean, functioning democracy. Uh I mean, sure. They, they both uh, suffer from like many countries in in the region suffer from uh, uh, rampant government corruption and stuff, but it it was a stark contrast. I mean, I had to bribe my way out of Togo. And then when we got to the, Mm -hmm. when we paid, uh, I think it was about 30 us dollars to get out of Togo once we got to the Beninese side, we told them the story and they rolled their eyes like these idiots over here or something, you know, like they like, like, when will they get it? They can't you don't treat people this way. More people will come to your country. You don't have to rely on bribes. <laughs> um, mm. So, yeah, it was a it was a um, stark contrast in Benin. People were generally friendlier, um, happier, more welcoming. Uh, I mean, at, at uh, one point. um people were drinking in the streets and we joined them in dance. You won't get that in Togo. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit some, sometime, but not that I, not that I saw. I mean, I certainly felt a difference in the attitudes of the people. Um, and of course not their fault. It's the political system under which they exist and the, the regime in which they, they are, um, in which they live every day. Uh, it's a much more poorer country than Benin, uh, and a smaller mm-hmm. country than Benin. And, um, yeah, it's just, um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's the, the police presence are, are, uh, are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And, um, Benin just didn't have that. It had a much happier open, open vibe. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So Togo, the, the market with various animal pieces, um, that, that was the highlight. Anything else that you 
you like really blew your mind because that anecdote to me was um yeah i mean there was a lot uh, there's you know there are unesco world heritage sites there when we went up uh we we traveled from south to north so i i drove a car from the the whole length of the of the country um how long did it I take think you? that it was about if i remember correctly it was about five six hours something like that um Oh, it's that's very tiny. small. It's very, very small. Oh, um, okay. Because Benin is, is not that small, right? It's kind of like this about kind one, of like uh, cylindrical. It's very slender country, countries. Right? Benin is I like one and a half mm-hmm. times larger. I think Benin has got the same oh, okay. slender. And then right at the top, it it like expands into, uh, I mm-hmm. guess, what is that? Burkina Faso. So it's um, yeah. it has a little bit more man, land mass and uh more green area too so it's it's uh it's it simply just has a higher uh gdp just from the agricultural sector alone um but in the north interesting enough um those two countries have been on and off for the last five years experiencing a spillover effect from uh, a terrorist group called uh the islamic Mm. state in the west african provinces um, the Islamic State is, uh, as we speak, being fought by the Nigerian Special Forces in Nigeria's um, northern, uh, north uh, eastern provinces. So as they are being pushed back out of Nigeria, they retreat into uh, some of the um, some of the northern territory, some of the northern parts of uh, both Togo and Benin. Uh, mm-hmm. It's quite interesting because those are two countries that have never had to, never experienced any kind of terrorism before. And now it's um, it's now mm-hmm. being pushed over into uh, their borders to some degree. Yeah. So I think we were in a place called Cairo, and that's the northernmost main city. And we were forbidden to go out at night. Um, we they were just like the hotel uh, simply stated uh, for your safety, the police that were there at the hotel we were forbade to leave the premises at night because um, you're just asking for trouble. You're white, you're white European and a, uh, or white British guy and a white American guy, a race uh, aside, um, just our nationalities alone put targets on our back for a group like ISWAP. Now, um, are they really looking mm-hmm. for, uh, are they really looking to kidnap in those areas? I don't think it's happened, but they, um, you certainly don't want to risk it. And um, it's certainly mm-hmm. a place that you don't want to uh, be caught at the wrong place at the wrong time with a GoPro camera and stuff. Um, but yeah, that certainly was uh, an interesting um, feature of the trip because you're not wow. experience, you're not expecting to uh, experience the same sort of security risks that you would should you be um, going to the Borno state of Nigeria or to Mali or to Niger. Mm-hmm. Um, or Burkina yeah. Faso, you know. Um, interestingly yeah. enough, too, like right after we left, Burkina Faso experienced a coup, and its leader was ousted. And where did his leader decide to go? Mm-hmm. Togo, because Togo is just like authoritarian mm-hmm. regime that kind of welcomes uh, these ousted despotic uh, guys, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and as far as I know, I think he might still be, he might still be there, but. Um, yeah. Nevertheless, anyway, I I feel like I'm rambling now. <laughs> no, I I don't think you are. I I find it in, incredibly interesting. So, Togo covered off. You move on to Benin. What 
things did you find the most surprising so about that? Right country? in the north of Togo, and as we crossed over into Benin, that's where we experienced. That's where we did most of. That's where we um, um, filmed most of the uh, voodoo ceremonies. Um, the voodoo mm. ceremonies were in these rural communities. Um, we didn't want to get anything too touristy because we couldn't really verify its authenticity. Um, the, my state of mind was if we go rural and they are not used to seeing white foreigners here, then it'll be authentic, even though they might, you know, push the envelope a bit or exaggerate somehow. I didn't want it to be a normal mm-hmm. thing that a guide takes you to because they know that you want to experience voodoo. So we were in these rural mm-hmm. areas in the north of both of those countries. And uh, I think we filmed most of the, not all, but most of the voodoo ceremonies that we were able to capture, or we were able to film. Um, we filmed them there. Um, uh, so yeah, and then we so from the at the north of Benin, we, we filmed most of those uh, ceremonies, and then started heading south. Um, and okay. uh, we headed south because that's where uh, the Kotanu Market is, um, as well as the airport. The Kotanu Market is the largest open air market in Africa, West Africa, and um, that's where uh, I purchased all the ingredients for okra stew or gumbo. And um, we filmed mm. that experience. And uh, yeah, again, you can read about that on the BBC's World Table. Um, and that'll be uh, probably the second or third video that comes out on Exit Strategy TV. Can you describe how it tastes? Yeah, um, it was bitter because most of the sauce that is created, it comes with heaps of gumbo, uh, heaps of okra. So in Louisiana gumbo, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll stew down um, or cook down uh, just a few uh, sliced uh, pieces of okra in the gumbo, um, but in West Africa, it's the staple of the. It's it's basically what holds everything together. So instead of making a, a French roux, they will make this. They will cook down a massive amount of uh, okra. And what happens when you do that is it becomes very slimy and gelatinous. But the reason mm-hmm. that that they do that is because. Uh, one, you eat gumbo in West Africa with your hands, and as you draw the uh, draw from the bowl, um, the this ooze it kind of looks like this green slime. I don't, I don't mean to. It tastes great, but it's bitter and it and it's able to hold all the other proteins in the in the in this. Um, I don't want to say ooze or slime, but I don't know another word like this sort of uh, weird gelatinous um, sticky mix. Um, and Mm -hmm. it's great because it, 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 what we do for our carbohydrate, we put everything over rice. Uh, and, uh, here they just take a piece of fufu, this cassava bread, and they Mm -hmm. eat it. Uh, they just pull the, the, this, this cooked down okra and it's holding, you know, delicious pieces of crab seasoned shrimp, um, pieces of fish. Um, they put hardened cheese in in their version of the stew, which was fantastic. That was my favorite part. Um, so yeah, it was it was um, it was certainly delicious, but it was uh, very different. Um, but it certainly held all of the uh, platforms and the legs that would later become you know Louisiana gumbo, which was certainly fascinating for me. It was just fascinating to be a native of Louisiana, to have grown up with gumbo. And you think it's always been this way for everybody forever. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, yeah. um, you, you know, your history is not the first. It, it came from somewhere else. Wow. 
That sounds delicious. I, I need to look for a place that serves it in London. I'm sure there is one. Uh, there, yeah, there, there, there absolutely. I'm sure it's. Uh, you can. There are some African restaurants here in Louisiana. If you could find an African place, um, especially a place that serves fufu, if you type in fufu London, I'm sure you'll find um, a uh, Nigerian market or something like that because everyone's gumbo around uh, around West Africa differs a little bit and they all fight over mm. who's got the best fufu and who makes the best gumbo. And it's all, it's all slightly different. So the Nigerian stuff is going to be slightly different from uh, what you get in Benin, but um, it will be very similar. And certainly if you want to try it, um, that's where you want to go. Um, okay. Now the, the, uh, for any travelers listening, I'll let you know this, especially Western travelers, because this happened. Um, the fufu that is used is usually made with local water and the local water has, um, untreated, uh, it's untreated and, uh, it can get you in a lot of trouble, um, digestive wise. Uh, we didn't think it mm. would hurt us, but we got taken out for three days with amoebic dysentery, uh, from eating the fufu. You don't think that they actually put it in water. You're hesitant not to drink the water. You're hesitant not to, um, consume any uh, salads or vegetables that are washed in local water. Um, but you'd never see the water in fufu because it's such a solid blob of, of this sticky stuff. You don't even think that, oh, untreated water went into this. Uh, so we were just eating it like crazy. And um, unfortunately, uh, now we didn't get, we didn't become ill uh, at this family's home um, the, where I wrote for the BBC, but we did stop uh, several times along the road. So on that six hour long journey um, throughout each city, there are just roadside cafes where you have to stop. Uh, and of course, there's no running water in a lot of these places. So uh, you could certainly, uh, I, I, I'll tell you now, just please be careful because the Western stomach is not used to this stuff and you will mm -hmm. be taken out for three days. And if you're only there a week, that means half of your vacation has just gotten cut or half of your experience mm. um, has just got cut because you really, you can't move. Um, it's uh, it's very rough. Mm. What is it? Just diarrhea? It's amoebic dysentery that will, yeah. I mean, you basically, it feels like, it felt like COVID. Uh, if you, if you've ever had it, it just, you completely loss of energy. Um, you're, you're puking, you do have diarrhea. And as a result, you're dehydrated mm. and you're, you start cramping up. You have to constantly be drinking water and taking, um, uh, uh, antibiotics and stuff like it's, 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 it's very terrible. It's not, it, I don't wish it on my worst enemy. It's, it was awful. Thankfully we knew we were there for an extended period of time. So we were able to take three days with no problem, but it was also three days of not being able to film three days of footage that we could have gotten and other things, you know, but um, it's certainly, yeah. it's certainly a warning uh, to anybody who uh, is traveling through that place. If you hear it from anyone um, take note because I got taken out three days. It was not fun. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. No taken, no taken 100%. So there is this footage you've posted, a short clip of you drinking moonshine with what looks to be either security force or a militia or just guys with yeah, guns. Yeah, those were Mercy guys. So those are the men of the Mercy tribe. I mentioned the Mercy tribe of Lower Omo Valley ah, okay. that uh, carry the lit plate um, in, the, in their... In, so we're yeah, Ethiopia. So that's, Okay, so let's get back to this in a sec, yeah, if you well, don't mind, if, sure. if that's okay. Thank you. Because um, I wanted to 
ask you a couple of other questions on Benin before we yep. move on. So how would you describe the society, how it works and your interactions with ind individual people as well? I mean, like I said before, the interactions were much more positive. Um, people were generally happier, I think, uh, because it's mm -hmm. look, both of these are poor countries by Western standards. You can look on the human index. They're both the, the, uh, the they rate very low um, on the human index uh, um, uh, charts. Um, these are countries that are considered developing. Um, they have to rely on um, some form of external intervention to feed its population and to, um, I think, you know, uh, try to uh, arise out of the, their developmental uh, issues, right? Um, but when you compare both of them, Benin is simply yeah. wealthier than Togo and, um, they're just, they're getting, um, they're getting more bang for their buck at the market. Their, their people are, um, uh, I think politically they're happier. Um, look, it's still not great. It's not great anywhere, really, but it's still not, it's still not great. Um, but in comparison, Benin is just, uh, it's the, um, it's, it's, it's slightly richer and, and just better off than, um, Togo in terms of economics, um, not in terms yeah. of really any other metric. Um, in, in most every other way, they mirror each other uh, in that they're neighboring countries. They're kind of like New Zealand to Australia to an extent. You know? They kind of exist mm -hmm. in this in this strange relationship. Um, yeah. Uh, one is simply more closed politically than the other. And um, as a result, Typically, people in totalitarian societies aren't aren't so readily able to express themselves freely, and as a result, you probably don't see happy emotions often. Um, that's just what I felt. Uh, and in mm. Benin, it, it just seemed more open. People were happier. People were giving us um, alcohol in the streets, dancing with us, wanting to find out who we were. They had questions. Um, zero problem from police. The police were ultra nice. In Togo, it was complete 180. They were suspicious. They wanted to know what we were doing, why, who we were, who we worked for, why we were there. Um, didn't get that one single time in Benin. Got it. And in terms of language, what, what languages do they uh, speak there? Is it completely so different So there are languages? different ethnicities throughout that region. Um, all of everybody pretty much speaks French, especially in the major um in the major uh, urban areas. Uh, Fon is the ethnic, local ethnic language um, of the region. The, uh, and I might be pronouncing it incorrectly, but the local ethnicities um, that I think span both countries are the Iwe, so mm -hmm. E-W-E peoples, um, and they speak Fon. Uh, now, uh, there are other ethnicities that I'm just, I'm just not, I'm not an expert in this area, so you can probably... Uh, do some of your own research and find the ethnicities that are that exist through um, those countries, and they typically overlap. Remember, a lot of these borders were drawn by Europeans in the nineteenth, eighteenth, and nineteenth centuries, so they don't exactly follow uh, ethnic or tribal, um, uh, you know, regions or communities. So they often overlap. Um, that, that you see a lot of that with Sudan, Ethiopia. 
and Somalia, those borders, I mean, completely drawn by uh, um, European powers and uh, um, the local ethnicities just span the borders. They just cross over. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I know of uh, um, about that part of the, uh, about that part of West Africa. No, thank you. That's really helpful. And one other question I have uh, about Benin was uh, the the Python temple or the place with a temple lot of Python. Temple based pythons. Yeah, that's well, that'll be another uh, another video uh, coming up, fourth or fifth video or something. Um, very fascinating place. There's a large temple that sits opposite a massive Catholic church. And inside, um, there are live pythons, and these are a relic to voodoo, um, and they're used in voodoo practice, and, and um, this specific area's voodoo uh, um, ceremonies. But what I found interesting, um, obviously not only the pythons, but what was interesting was that this temple was built uh, directly facing a Catholic church, which I think in the West almost seems like it's adversary uh, or, or you're, you're doing something almost disrespectful. It would be like putting something secular in front of a church or something because you're trying to make a point about something. But in their view, they were doing this because uh, they um, Catholicism is also, they pay extreme homage to Catholicism. Catholicism is a huge part of um, uh, believing and practicing voodoo. Um, many people attend Catholic Mass on one Sunday, and then they practice voodoo on Saturday or Monday. Um, they're they're doing both, and they see it all as one religion, one God. Um, so it mixes in uh, a very interesting and complex way. Uh, but from what I what I was told there, the, the reason that they built that temple directly facing it was to pay respect to um, Catholicism and the Catholic missionaries that came to Togo and Benin um, a very long time ago. Um, mm. The interesting thing about the about the the python temple is that the pythons are loose and they are not really allowed to they're not poisonous they don't strangle humans they're completely they're the type of python that i think they're called um oh i can't even remember now there's it's it's whatever type of python that's not that's not uh venomous or um doesn't pose any danger to human beings um but they pay so much respect to them kind of like the way uh, Indian society pays respect to uh, bovine uh, creatures, or cows and stuff. They just are allowed to roam as they as they wish. Same thing here. Um, but that also means that the pythons leave the temple. So uh, as mm-hmm. pythons do leave the temple, sometimes they get into the, the, the church across the street. Sometimes they just go into town. They go into the market. Um, but kids are constantly just picking them up and bringing them back to the temple. And they have all they all the snakes are uh, all the pythons there are accounted for. So as they escape, uh, there somebody eventually finds it, uh, mother, aunt, or someone, and just picks it up. They're non venomous. They just pick it up and bring it back, and they're set in this little room and they're able to feed and stuff. Um, inside of the wow. temple. Uh, there are voodoo fetishes. So these weird mounds that I was telling you about, they're inside of here. They're made out of uh, clay and metal. Um, and they each one represents a different voodoo god. In the video, I do describe, I go to each one and film each one and describe uh, which, um, which voodoo god it represents. The coolest one was, um, I think it was the... Uh, uh, 
there there's a voodoo god to like um uh, it wasn't like a natural element. It was like metal ore. So there's usually like a voodoo god for the sun, a voodoo god for water, a voodoo god for some some elemental thing. But there was one that struck with mm-hmm. me that was about like metal ore. And it was cool because it was this large pit and people threw like these metal gears, like metal scraps, like from car engines and motorcycle right. engines and screws and anything metal that they could find. They would throw in there and they dump palm oil all over it and rum. And they say a prayer or they pay homage to the voodoo, um, that that voodoo spirit. Um, but that was the coolest one. All the others you could find, you know, that that represented the elements. And those were cool. But uh, I just like the industrial look of this uh, voodoo fetish that was like grounded in uh, in, in metalwork and uh, had a bunch of gears and chains and uh, cool metal parts. Like it was like like a little weird, like a, a junk, a junk pile. <laughs> I can't wait to yeah, see that video, that cool. honestly. Um, wow. Okay. So, Benin, do you do you think we have that covered in terms I think of the so. flavor I mean, for we're, the place? We're, we're going on an hour here, so I don't want to. I don't want to um, keep you too long. <laughs> no, I. I, I can stay as long as, as as you want to keep going. I, I I'm more than happy to you know chat a bit more about um, Ethiopia and generally speaking about your work that relates to conflict yeah, sure. uh, covering I, those. I have about if, thirty minutes. If, if you're happy I have, to I have stay, about thirty minutes. I'm happy to continue. Uh, okay. Yeah. As as long as cool. you feel feel uh, good on time. Um, thirty minutes on the clock. That is that works for me more than more than more than more than. Um, more than well. So what conflicts have you covered and how did you get into that? And what were your experiences yeah. in that? I know it's a broad so question. I want to make it clear. I'm not a uh, war correspondent. I haven't gone to Ukraine to the front line. I haven't gone to Syria while they were battling uh, Assad um, or, or, or I haven't been anywhere where there are bombs going off or something like that. I'm not opposed to doing that sort of work, but it's incredibly dangerous and incredibly difficult to do that as an independent journalist. Now, it's gotten easier with Ukraine. Um, a lot of guys are out there right now uh, as independent filmmakers, independent reporters, um, and they're covering what they can. But um, usually when you're doing that sort of work, you have to go through extensive training, um, extensive exit strategy training, uh, uh, extensive, um, uh, there are lots of, you know, insurance issues, uh, uh, surrounding that. So you usually have to be backed by a large agency like the BBC or CNN or, um, uh, whatever it may be, uh, uh one of the, a large mm-hmm. agency that's going to uh, have the resources to put you there, give you the protection that you need and get you out. Um, I think that work is fascinating. I have full respect for people who do that. I think that we would know a lot less about the conflicts that are occurring today if it wasn't for those people. So my full hat tip to them and and what they do. Um, with that said, there are uh, African conflicts that happen every day that don't get covered and don't get reported on. There were two at the time um, that I was traveling to Ethiopia before and after COVID. 
Um, the first was the Tigray War that was happening up north with the uh, Tigray People's Liberation Front, the Tigray Defense Forces, and the Ethiopian state government or the Ethiopian Defense Forces, the EDF. It's a very complex, um, very, very complex uh, conflict to understand. Um, I won't do it here because it would take more than an hour to explain, but um, it is certainly one that occurred that I think uh, because of the Ukraine war, um, never got full attention in international media and um, is one that is still relatively unknown and actually turned out to be probably the worst humanitarian, the second worst humanitarian crisis of the 21st century. Um, that with what first yeah, being Yemen? Right, yes. Uh, yeah. So, so you know, it's a uh, it's it's difficult. You know, journalists were getting kicked out left and right. American journalists who are working for the New York Times. Simon Marks was uh, the gentleman. There's William Davison and a few others with uh, Crisis Group who were uh, asked to leave or deported from just doing normal journalistic work in the region, not even on the front lines, just providing analysis. Um, so it's very difficult to do this work. So when I try to cover conflict uh, in my reporting, I try to provide at least the um, context in which it's happening just to bring it attention. And then in the YouTube videos where I can cover it, where I can get um, interviews, for example, in North Benin, I interviewed a school teacher who was impacted by um, ISIS in the West African province, ISWAP. Um, there. So obviously I'm not shooting ISIS. Okay. I'm not up there shooting uh, or shooting the Togolese military uh, trying to root them out. It's just impossible to do for mm -hmm. a, you know a variety of reasons, but I do interview civilians yeah. impacted by the security situation there and try to contextualize the conflict um, around that. I mean, I, doing this for YouTube, that's the only real way you can do it. Unless you are an embedded journalist like Jake with Popular Front. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but um, if you look up uh, Popular Front, Jake Hanrahan, you know, this guy uh, is covering conflict all the time and making many documentaries, getting right up close to some of those, um, to, you know, you know, crude gunfire and, and, and bombs and stuff, and also interviewing civilians. I'm nowhere near as effective as he is, but um, that's the sort of stuff I do and what I'm aiming to do. Now, will that change later? Maybe, you know, I might get hired with an international organization to do some conflict reporting where I can really get in deep. I'd love to do that stuff. Um, especially, mm -hmm. I'd really love to cover uh, what uh, uh, personnel, regardless of the sides, what they're eating in the foxholes. Uh, that's never covered. I want to know what, uh, how, the, how you're surviving, what nutritional survival mechanisms are, are at play. What are the guys in Ukraine in those trenches uh, eating? I know that seems that might seem not important, but it's what keeps them alive. Like, and nobody knows the answer mm. to this. I mean, it's got to be something more than MRE. So I'm always curious um, about that sort of stuff. How they entertain themselves when. They have downtime. I, I'm, I'm very curious about that stuff. And it seems um, that might seem not important to the conflict. But I think um, all those aspects of daily life are integral to understanding uh, countries better, the way people live better, regardless if they're in conflict. You know, I travel to Madagascar. There's virtually no political conflict. So you're left with beautiful landscapes, culture and cuisine. Hey, then I'll cover that. And I'm happy to cover that for anybody who's willing to listen. Yeah.
No, I mean, uh, who wouldn't be interested in what's going on in Madagascar? Like, it's a completely different place to, you know, what I, for example, know on a daily basis. What's, what is going on in Madagascar? Um, I mean, you know, politically, uh, it's a relatively stable economy, but it is the third poorest country in the, uh, on the planet. Um, it has, uh, um, absolutely breathtaking and beautiful landscapes. Um, it's, uh, an island surrounded by amazing, but harsh waters. Um, uh, it's regularly prone to cyclones, which keeps it, I think it keeps its infrastructure. You can't build any infrastructure there, like roads and things, um, that will stay long-term or survive long-term. And this is kind of what keeps it, um, at the third poorest country on the planet. It's not really because of any type of warfare or, or political conflict. Uh, it also has suffered from these massive swarms of locusts. I actually have a video on YouTube now. Um, it's not a short, but if you go into my videos, I have a very slow-mo video of being caught in a locust swarm. And they're just hundreds of thousands of locusts that devastate their, uh, their rice fields and their agriculture. So it's difficult mm. to, just because of natural disasters, I think it's just difficult to um, survive there on subsistence agriculture as it is. And they uh, regularly rely on external forces to, uh, to help them with uh, developmental issues. Um, what's, the, what's the ethnicity of people who live in Madagascar? Malagasy. Malagascar. Um, there are different uh-huh. ethnic groups within that, but most the entire, uh, uh, it was a French colony, so it speaks French, but Malagasy is what everyone speaks. Pretty much everybody um, that, I, that I saw there, um, that, or that, I encounter, that I met there. Um, it's a very interesting language. The, uh, the people, the Malagasy look uh, like Asian and black mix or Asian and African kind of mix because of mm-hmm. just their geographical uh, area and I think the food, um, the food uh, uh, mimics this. There's a, a certainly an Asian influence, uh, just because the uh, I think the um, eastern part of the island was visited by uh, uh, Asian travelers, um, and I'm, I'm not exactly sure when, but uh, probably you know as far back as people were in boats um, and able to get there through the Indi- over the Indian Ocean. Um, fascinating island um, and amazing infrastructure, amazing people, a wonderful place to be. It caters off, to, it catered a lot to Western travelers. People want to go to Madagascar to see, you know, the chameleons and the lemur. Um, but there are, that, that island has um, profound endemic species that you just can't find anywhere else on, on, on earth. It's, it's, it's a, it's such a geographically isolated place where only, a certain few species that are endangered um, exist and don't exist anywhere else. There are, I think, uh, several species of lemur and chameleon that um, are only endemic to Madagascar uh, and a, uh, some flora as well. Oh, that sounds, that sounds. So it's, it's fantastic. I mean, but all of these things are under threat because of biotourism. So people are really, you know, uh, People want to go to Madagascar and they are in dire need of tourism dollars. But the more tourists that mm-hmm. you bring through its natural diversity, the more of the natural diversity is destroyed or, or impacted. So this is the struggle that Madagascar maintains. I mean, Costa Rica is in the same boat, 
right? Everyone wants to go to Costa Rica to see the beauty of the jungle and the species that exist there and the uh, wonderful waterfalls and stuff. But the more Western travelers that go, not even Western, just in general, the more travelers that go, the more their, that, their biotourism um, impacts, impacts the island. But of course, these people need jobs and money as well. So it's very difficult to find a balance. Um, it's also difficult to get to Madagascar. Um, uh, flights into Tana, the capital, um, only depart out of Nairobi, Kenya, or um, uh, maybe Mozambique. Pro- actually, probably not. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, uh, or another major hub that's very far away like Dubai. But if you're already in Africa, you have to transit through one of those countries and you can only use Air France. So Air France, the former, um, the airline, the national airline of its former uh, colonizer um, has a monopoly on the uh, travel into, um, into the country. How strange. Is it just there's nobody else who wants to do it on a regular I, I, basis? I don't do know. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, um, there might it may be so. I, I'm, I don't want to speculate here, but uh, I'm not sure. I mean, it could just be yet another way that um, France maintains its control over former colonies. I mean, you see this in West Africa. In West Africa, all these countries yeah. that I visited, I think it might be 13. I'd have to look it up. But um, there's a handful and most of West Africa is on the West African franc. So they're using the same currency pegged to the franc. And if you study the foreign policy of France, the foreign policy of France within West Africa over the last, well, since independence, um, the story is about whatever France can do to maintain control over its former colonies to use that currency because it's pegged to the franc. Part of the reason why Togo is an authoritarian state is because it needed a one-party leader um, uh, to agree that in exchange for endless power, you keep your country on the West African franc, on the CFA. Um, Wait, so they all use the same currency? And it's called West... West African franc. Or the CFA. No, no, that's 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 that that's all yeah. I need to know for now. So essentially, all those countries use the same currency. Yeah, correct. Okay? It's backed by the French uh, Treasury and it's pegged to the euro. So, um, oh, right. Is, How everything, all that money and all the value and everything that is imported, exported through a French company, is pegged through it. It is funneled through the French Treasury and pegged to the value mm. of the euro. Um, and yeah. this is, you know, I mean, this has its. On, on one hand, it stabilizes the economy. It's great for people to travel through those countries. You don't have to ever change currency. So there's a it's a relatively yeah. stable economy. But the problem is that the inflation um, is rampant. So um, and and it's wildly changing. So for a mother to feed her children of three um, two years ago is drastically different today. We don't suffer this in the West. Mm. We have incredibly stable economies where what we paid two years ago is relatively what we're paying today for a basket of tomatoes or whatever. Um, Not there. This could double, triple. And on people that are making $2 a day, this is devastating. Um, And it's because they're back to such a um, volatile volatile situation as such. So I don't know if that's the same reason why Air France is the only is the only uh, is the only um, uh, 
um, importer of tourists there. I, I probably not, but um, it's the, certainly the only airline that um, that you can that you can get into the, get onto the island. Um, and there are only like two flights a day, just, so you got to choose wisely. Yeah, early in the morning or late afternoon. Hmm. Have you seen any other signs of you know kind of colonialism in all those countries? I mean, of course, seen? it's everywhere. You see, you see remnants of colonialism everywhere. You see remnants of colonialism here in the states. I mean, if you're looking for it, you'll find it. Um, if 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 you pay attention to that sort of stuff, you'll see it. You'll see it everywhere, from the uh, architecture to the infrastructure to the heavy machinery, the labels of the heavy machinery that are um, that are on the uh, the tools that they use. Um, everything from mm-hmm. um, the names of the schools. They're from you know they're named after a French guy, or just the fact that they're speaking French, for example. Um, the fact that Kenyans yep. speak English. I mean, it's not like that didn't happen on accident. <laughs> yep. No, that makes well. It's actually a slightly general question, and maybe maybe it's one uh, that I wanted to ask you. What did you learn about human condition and human nature through your travels in Africa? Great question. Um, that's a great question. Uh, If people drink alcohol, they tend to uh, sit down and relax a little while to uh, to powwow. You know what I mean by that? Like that's a that's a Native American term that I probably shouldn't use, so you can edit that out. But um, alcohol is a great social lubricant wherever you go. You you have a shot of rum or or moonshine or something, you'll notice that everybody sits down and people are usually chilled out and talking uh, until it's too much. You know. Um, but almost everywhere you go, uh, this is like, it seems to be a, um, always, I mean, with the exception of the Arab world, which may be, you know, not alcohol, but tea or something, um, this sort of drink or that we're all sitting down and I'm not saying anything new here. I'm sure Anthony Bourdain said something that was much more, uh, much more profound than, than, than what I, what I'm able to get out here. But I mean, food and drink. Uh, simply bring people together. And if you can't speak the language, that's what you do when you have a bunch of time to kill and you're out in the bush and there's no uh, cell service and there's no laptop stuff and you have to do sign language to communicate. Um, you're eating and drinking at the same time. And I think that's really what binds people together. And uh, you can make friends really fast with cruel enemies. If you hand over some candy or, um, you know, you have to bribe a cop with a beer or American candy or something like that. That stuff works. And there's a reason that the things that human beings eat, um, for whatever reason, uh, bring us together. I mean, uh, it's been said before, so there's nothing new that I can say. Um, in terms of conflict, uh, it's difficult. I'm no expert here. Um, there's a huge debate on whether conflict happens because we abandon our principles to other countries or if they are an actual um, sort of uh, component of social life, meaning is conflict, basically the question is, is conflict avoidable or is it inevitable? Um, Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that a lot there. Obviously, you know, that's an ongoing debate, but it's something that uh, uh, people probably should think about more. I'm, I'm very curious about the organization of the state against other factions within itself, meaning 
um, mm -hmm. how warfare uh, um, begins uh, and then comes to a fever pitch and then is ultimately resolved, not, not resolved, or it manifests into another sort of uh, emerging conflict that happens later. Um, yeah. I mean, these are all philosophical political science questions, but I studied political science for like a decade of my life. So those are the questions that are constantly in my, in circling around my, my head. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think those things, you know, I think uh, you always, uh, you know, I always left those countries um, thinking that I could have done more, that I could have shot more, that I could have told a um, more unique story, but that's just me as a writer and journalist being hard on myself. I think, if you're trying to do something good, you're trying to do good reporting, trying to do interesting reporting, um, it's never good enough. Uh, so um, all I would say is uh, if you're sitting out there and you're interested in doing this stuff or you're just interested in traveling, don't go to um, Ibiza. Everyone does that. Go to somewhere interesting that nobody goes to. Go somewhere and uh, and 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 rip open the the. Um, the, the experience, you know, try to find something unique and write about it and share it with other people. That's wildly more interesting to probably you and I than what some guy went to Ibiza and dropped ecstasy and came back home. And I mean, everybody does that. So like, I mean, why go to Bangkok if you're just going to like get hammered and, you know, uh, um, and wake up every day, and go to the beach. It's just not, that's not travel. That's not what human beings were meant to do. Go do something fascinating. Go to the rural places. Most places are wildly safe. Most people are incredibly friendly and curious, mm. and they just want to know about you. You learn about them. I mean, it's 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 all the stuff that's I think been said before that um, someone else has said better than me. So um, I'll probably keep it at that. No, it's no, it's true. I agree with you. I, I especially you know from my limited travels and life experiences, I especially agree with the point that most places are safe and most people are really yeah. good. And they'll help you. If you're in a sticky situation, people will help you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree with you. I agree with you. And just maybe last question. Yeah, if you yeah, have I've time. got about 10 minutes. Okay. We'll, we'll use less than that. Ethiopia. I've seen, I think it's from Ethiopia, but correct me if I'm wrong. I've seen this clip where people build those, their huts, made of kind of like metal and, and new materials and it creates this surrealistic vibe yeah, it's about like post-apocalyptic uh um sort of thing um you do find that kind of everywhere um in ethiopia there were um uh this one particular tribe that the name escapes me right now um but they uh, they did use scrap tin and uh, a variety of different metal parts and stuff to um, shield themselves from the sun. I think part of the reason was uh, because they're they they're nomadic and they want to reuse them, so it's easier to take um, uh, metal materials that won't decompose 
like sticks and mud, you just can't move that for miles, you know? Mm. So they're able to find uh, some of these uh, metal scraps to create um, huts from. They're also a fascinatingly better conductor of cool air in a place where you don't have trees or shade uh, because it Mm. reflects the sunlight away. And so inside you can actually Mm. survive a bit better. Whereas like sticks and mud, um, it's, 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 it's good condense. It's a good, uh, um, uh, sealant from the heat but you still get a lot of heat drawn in uh, especially if you have a small fire built inside for whatever reason um on the other hand it's way more difficult to to, uh to move metal on the backs of donkeys or horses or cattle um and they often cause injury a cut from a piece of metal Mm. will have a devastating effect for a nomadic tribe um in contrast to one that gets cut by a stick or uh, a thorn or something like that, which is relatively easy to uh, repair. And they've had plenty of experiences there, but with a piece of tin, um, you know, you're looking at gangrene setting in or having a a severe infection. um, And unless you get like some outside medical intervention um, can be, can be ravishing uh, on a, on a, on a, a people that's trying to move sharp, metals um hmm. interesting i haven't thought about that but that, that's obviously yeah hazard. it's a it's a terrible hazard because if that stuff slices through you i mean that's 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 rough and that could that could uh, debilitate the entire nomadic uh process um that particular tribe though i think um kind of set there they're semi-nomadic people but they decided to make that particular place um their home now for whatever reason that is, I, I didn't get that far, but um, uh, nevertheless, they were fascinating people. It was great to meet them. And um, that will also be another video coming up on Exit Strategy TV. I, I think I think there was something very beautiful about those huts. In yeah, they're, they're, well, they're certainly, um, they're certainly different from the types that you normally see, just made from cow dung and mud. Um, but there was a certain beauty, um, this shiny shiny um diamonds that are all just kind of sitting around each other uh, yeah i know i agree with you hmm. yeah what an experience what's what, what's which country was your favorite out of the, the ones I, that you've i get asked seen? that a lot possible to decide sorry possible to yeah, decide? it's really impossible i mean i get asked that probably more than anything and it's just it's it's difficult there are some that are more difficult to travel through for of different reasons but um they all have their own unique personality uh and i'm just someone that can't choose a it's like asking um what your favorite musician is i mean you, i mean you just there's a handful of them uh, maybe some people have like one. I've just I don't I, I can't operate that way. I I love each of these places for their for for a different reason and in their own way. Even the authoritarian ones, where I'm adamantly opposed to authoritarianism, but uh, um, even those have a special place in my heart because uh, um, they're just fast. It's just fascinating countries in a certain political predicament. That's how I view them, uh, and. Uh, they can all be um, everywhere can be better and everywhere. I don't know. Everywhere is really special. Uh, everywhere's got something unique to offer. Um, even what, a place that's considered to be wildly uncomfortable or, um, uh, or just a, a, a terrible place to visit 
Um, there's always something fantastic and unique if you look for it, if you find it. Uh, but it's up to you to find it. I mean, you can't just go and expect things to fall into your lap. Uh, if you're a passive traveler that way, you're not going to have a good time. You really have to do your due diligence, do some research and explore. Um, and I think uh, if more people did that, we'd have more enlightened citizenry around the world and we would have um, more interesting stories to tell. I, I don't want to hear about Ibiza anymore. <laughs> no, I, I want to hear about the things you were yeah, talking sure. about. That sounds amazing. I can't wait to read that article from the... Also, from the no disrespect to Ibiza. There are places on the island yeah. that are fantastic, but I, they're never covered. They're never they're never uh, talked about. It's always um, the same old story with most people that go there and come back. So no disrespect to Ibiza. Yeah. No, it's also, in a way, it's also a metaphor. Yeah, um, certainly. I know, I, I know what you mean. Okay, well... I think we should call call it a day because there is a lot to take. I appreciate your time. Jody thank Ray, you so much. Thank you let very much. Exit Strategy let, yeah, TV. Yeah, let me tell huh? you my Instagram. Please follow me. Instagram is exitstrategy.tv and uh, YouTube channel is at exitstrategy.tv, all one word. And then also on Instagram, I do the podcast as well. If you're interested in the podcast, I got some really awesome ones lined up for the next, uh, uh, like next month. Um, you can find all of those on Spotify, iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts. Just uh, Google Jody Ray or at, at Exit Strategy Podcast. Um, and then on Instagram, exitstrategy.podcast. Uh, and I'm starting to upload video versions of those on YouTube as well. If you're interested in supporting the work, I have a Patreon. It's www.patreon.com slash show. Um, reach out to me there. Reach out to me on Instagram. I'll, I read everything. So um, um, come say hi. And Jan, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. No, it's me who should be thanking you. Cheers, thanks. mate. Thank you All very right. much. Thank it was you. an honor.